I'm Mustelid Maniac Mike. And I'm a synthetic fiber mammoth, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse that we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Woof, 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 woof. To talk about our favorite animals. But we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Well, what's up, Meredith? Oh, you know, just hanging out. Childhood bedroom station, Dalmatian station. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm in my uh, adult bedroom here in the Eastern Outpost. Yep. My usual spot lately. With your um backdrop of pants. Yeah, the pants are... I got tired of dealing with all of my shorts just on the floor, so I got these little hooks, and now my shorts are up on the wall. Because, you know, like I said, it's an adult bedroom. And I think, actually, the camo and, like, the earth tones that you've got going on back there are actually, like, it's almost a safari scene. Thanks. That's what I was going for. I repositioned the camera for this episode just for you, Meredith. And you know what? I did notice. I figured you would. It's perfect. So how was your week? In animals. Well, my week in animals took an interesting turn. Oh. Friend of the podcast, Paul, our music friend who's a composer and an educator. Yes. He's very into this music right now called Vaporwave. Do you know about Vaporwave, Meredith? I've heard of it. Please. It's a genre that plays to nostalgia. It's essentially slowed down R&B beats sort of vibe. And there's sub-genres within it. One of them is called Mall Soft. Okay. So I've been watching a lot of videos on YouTube of Mall Soft compilations, which also include images of malls from like the 80s and 90s, like the commercials in the malls of our childhood. Yes. And I don't know if you remember, but, you know, malls are a gathering place. It, yep. It's a cultural center. There were performances. There were amusement parks at these malls. We, yeah. Talking water slides and even dolphins. <gasps> and so I guess on my mall soft journey, I just was not expecting Cetacean Nation to show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Man, I did not go to any malls like that growing up, but I know of them like Mall of America fame. It's like an amusement park that's also a retail metropolis really yeah exactly like the mall of america as tourist destination right between that and supermarket sweep being on hulu yeah (laughs) i have to tell you i'm spending a lot of time thinking about consumerism as the culture of america and as the predominant export of uh, american society and culture specifically i guess yes And if I can make an odd segue from Supermarket Sweep to something I learned like literally 20 minutes ago. So there are these things called sewing hams. It just looks like a loaf of something. But what you use it for is to like iron curved surfaces. Like when you're sewing, say, a mask for your face. 
and you have to press down some seams. You have to like lay it over this thing called a sewing ham. My mom's like, oh, just go use the ham downstairs. I was like, come again? You're like the sliced pepperidge farm, pre-sliced pepperidge farm ham. I mean, are we talking like a black forest? Is this like a wildflower honey baked? No, a sewing ham. It's like, oh, okay. And hey, it turns out it does work wonders when you're trying to iron down a curved surface. Who knew? Well, apparently your mom. When it comes to sewing, she's got the know-how. Yeah, we do have to have your mom and my mom talk about sewing. We still haven't done that. I know, one of these days. Uh One of these days it'll happen. Oh, Meredith, there was another creature in my Mallsoft YouTube journey. And it was a cat and it was wearing a necklace and it was like in an advertisement for a jeweler, you know, a fancy cat wearing a fancy necklace. Uh huh. So that was pretty fun too. And then I haven't pet a dog in a very, very long time now, mm-hmm. but I thought about dogs and Paul, again, aforementioned Paul, his dog Tyson showed up on a Zoom call and- Yes. Tyson is a dog gentleman that we both know. Yes. Distinguished dog gentleman, Tyson. And that was kind of nice. It's always nice seeing him. I don't think that he, you know, realizes who we are. I I think there's no smell in Zoom, you know? Right. Smell is everything. It is. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of like my whole week in animals right there. That sounds so fun. I want to check out some Vaporwave Mall Soft jams. Yeah, I recommend St. Pepsi. Okay. (laughs) That's cute. Yeah, I went on a little nature walk last night and saw a quite an abundance of um, representation of undulate squad. So a lot of deer trampling around. I saw two herons fly by quite beautifully. And then I also saw a little cicada kind of crawling out of some um, bushes, just crawling right at me. He was pretty cute. That is cute. Yeah. Meredith, have we talked about cicadas? Um, well, we might soon. Oh, well, then I'll save all my cicada fun facts and just kind (laughs) of wait patiently for the future, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, that future can be now. I mean, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. All right, let's do it. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy you. Taxonomy we. Taxonomy who. Taxonomy. Kingdom. Animalia. That should come as no surprise. Phylum. Arthropoda. Internal skeletons are for chumps. Class. Insecta. Everyone knows that means six-legged. Order. Hemiptera. Only true bugs allowed. Family. Cicada day sing out, sing loud, our eyes bulge and we're proud. Genus. Magic cicada. Actually, we are pretty magical. Species. Magic cicada septendecim. The broods are large, the numbers are prime, it's a 17-year cicada. Um, you know, Meredith, I don't mean to jump the gun here, but I am very excited to hear any of the information that you have about Brood 9, which is this year's brood, because I'm a cicada fan. I'm a cicada head. (gasps) Me too, it turns out. Okay, so the inspo, as I alluded to, the inspo for this was on my walk, just this little cicada. He was like all muddy, and he was just kind of like walking towards me, like, You know, like when an animal like expectantly like walks towards you to say hi, it was kind of like that. I even got a video of it. So stay tuned for that. Obviously, the kind of cicada that I saw yesterday would not be the cicadas that I want to talk about now. So the cicada I saw yesterday was what would most likely be what's called an annual cicada. I guess one that just has an annual life cycle as opposed to the 17-year cicadas, which have 
believe it or not, 17-year life cycles. Whoa. (laughs) And they're so fascinating. And I think this love of them, maybe this was the same for you, came about because Brood 10, which is the Cincinnati area, kind of up into Indiana and some parts of northern Kentucky, Brood 10 appeared when I think it was like 91, when I was like five. And I thought the whole thing was hilarious. Like there's pictures of me just like hanging out with them in my hair, like on just stuck on my shirt. And then again in 2004, when I was a senior in high school, they came back and it was, again, I found the whole incident to be very hilarious because just the sheer number of them is like, mind-boggling yeah there's a lot yes like one million per square mile i think is what i or maybe even acre i think it was per square acre which is crazy yeah i don't have that fact at the top of my cicada brain right (laughs) so actually i thought this was kind of a good piggyback on last week's talk with the stink bug because up through the order uh we've got essentially the same stuff going on. So obviously insects, they're um, hexapods, six-legged, duh. Order hemiptera, which is referring to the true bugs, right? With their sucking mouth parts. Right. Also the cicadas, they've got some sucking mouth parts. Uh-huh. And then when we get to family, we're like straight up in the cicada day family. So we are there. So around the world, there's like, I think something like 30,000 species in terms of the ones we're talking about with these 17-year cicadas that encompasses, I think, like seven different species. We've got family cicada day. When we get down to genus, we go into the magic cicadas. That's what they're called, magic cicadas. It's like they're magical. And majestic. And majestic. Um, so that's when when we get into magic cicadas, that's referring to what is also known as the periodical cicadas. So that means that they come up either every 13 years or every 17 years, right? And then when we get into the Magicata septendecim, that's specifically referring to 17-year cicadas. So they've got a 17-year lifespan. Septendecim, you said? Septendecim. Septendecim. Yeah. Sure, like septep, sep for seven and des for 10. Yeah, something like that. That that makes sense. This is all just such fascinating stuff because it's just like one of the strangest creature life cycles, I think. And the fact that it has affected my life at least twice. And I think the next one, um, as far as Brood 10 goes, so the one I grew up with. 2021. 2021. So it's coming up. It's coming up. So in preparation, in celebration we can learn a little bit about them so we know what's going on essentially beneath our feet as we speak. Uh, Yes. I'm just so excited. I know. It's really fun. I had such a good time learning about this for sure because it's always been like part of my like belt shot. You know what? I'm not going to try to come up with German phrases right now. I'm just not going to do it. Gotterdammerung. Valhalla. So first of all, we can just kind of talk about what they look like just so we can paint that picture. They've got these bulging red eyes and they're kind of set far apart. Um, that's probably one of the most distinctive things. And then okay. they've got a black dorsal surface. So black backs. Sure. Obviously six legs. And then they've got these pretty cool wings, really. They're um, membranous. So they're kind of like made with a membrane, but then they're, and so they're kind of translucent but they've got these orange veins that run through them. 
quite distinctively. So now that we've got that, we've got this picture of these awesome bugs, true bugs. Yeah. Indeed bugs. Okay. So life cycle. I'm going to start with them in their essentially like larval and juvenile state, which as we speak in terms of the brood 10 cicadas. So when I talk about brood, a brood can um, encompass different species, but broods are essentially geographically distinct groups that will all emerge together at these 17-year increments. Right. But the brood can encompass different species. Okay, yes. And so when they say that a place has a particularly heavy cicadas that year, that means that the brood is kind of in that area. Right. And then there's a number of patchwork broods, Mm -hmm. like, across the region. So, like, per year, you if you want to study cicadas, you have to go to a different region because the different broods hatch in different places. Right. And I will say they're primarily kind of, like, east of the Mississippi. So most of these are going to be happening, like, on the eastern side of North America. Fierce. And I looked this up. So Cincinnati, uh, that's brood 10. And I think Cleveland is brood 5. Oh. And so they're, like, on different schedules. Yeah. So brood 5 would have been, like, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right now, brood 10. We'll talk about brood 10 just because they're, you know, maybe in less than a year, they'll be making their appearance here, which is very exciting. So right now, they're in this larval stage that they've been in for essentially the past 16 years. And they're sustaining themselves underground, so about two feet underground, by using their sucking mouth part to essentially suck the sweet, tender juices and saps out of, like, tree roots, right? So they're being sustained through that. Come next year, so in late spring, early summer, overnight, when the soil hits 64 degrees, okay, 64 degrees Fahrenheit, they will emerge from the soil en masse. So like millions, millions, millions. When I say en masse, it's a lot. Massive mass. And they all kind of climb up into the trees and they do one final molt of their exoskeleton or of this kind of like um, hard shell, essentially. They're shell casings. They kind of crack out of them. And when they crack out of them, they're still kind of white, like almost albino looking because they've got these bright red eyes and their wings unfurl. There's some like great footage of this on YouTube. Um, Their wings unfurl. And then so essentially over the next few days, they kind of hang out on this tree and their bodies will harden and darken to the point where they're ready to fly, spread their cicada wings and fly. At which point their sole purpose is just to get it on. It's just, I, I'm reminded of our Mormon fuck bugs, AKA the big dipper firefly where they would be larva for, in that case, it was like a season. Right. And then they would emerge from the ground as the lightning bugs, which is the form that we recognize, but they were only on this planet in that form for a brief period of time. And the only thing that they were doing is flashing their lanterns so that, you know, they can make more right little baby fireflies, you know, and pass on the lucibophagan energy or whatever it was. Yeah, <laughs> lucibophagans, yes. Oh, great recall on that. Thanks. 
that's a really a great analog to this. So whereas the lightning bugs kind of light their lanterns as a signal that they're, you know, ready to do some work, the uh, male cicadas will essentially kind of gather in, guess what it's called? The group that they gather in to sing their song. I don't even, I can't even begin to imagine a joyful noise. It's a chorus. A chorus of cicadas, that's the term of venery? I don't know. See, I was actually wondering that. I don't know if it's technically the term of venery, but I know when the males gather in these groups and just kind of start singing the song of their people, they're in this chorus, this like congregation chorus, meant to attract females. And this might beg the question, how do they make the sound? And essentially, it's this is kind of a fun um, music term. They've got these membranes on their abdomens called timbals, similar to timpani. Sure. But timbals, the term it said was like a buckling and an unbuckling. So probably like a contraction and release of this membrane. And it makes this crazy like, sounds. And it's supposed to kind of sound like they're saying the word pharaoh. So sometimes these cicadas will be referred to as pharaoh cicadas. I heard it more as a wee-woo than pharaoh, but <laughs> whatever. Right. Sure. No, I'm I'm with you. I'm on team wee-woo and not on team pharaoh. It's like, that just seems like a bit of a reach. And so what happens then is some lady cicadas might be flying by. And the way that they signal that they're into it is that they will essentially really fast, like slap, slap their little wings together and kind of like a clicking sound. And then the men hear that sound and go over to them. And then they kind of do this like butt to butt formation. And then that's when the magic happens. That's so romantic. Isn't it? And actually, I was there's a wonderful David Attenborough video of him hanging out with cicadas. And <laughs> he's like behind this male and he's like snapping his fingers and like essentially leading the cicada like all over. Like the cicada will follow the sound of the snap because that is like their sole purpose in life to the point where like. He's like snapping his fingers and the cicada like comes up and lands on his ear. And Attenborough's like, oh gosh, you're so loud. You're so loud. He's like trying to snap him away from his head. (laughs) It's really funny. That's very funny. Meredith, I want to do a quick recap on life cycle. Sure, sure, sure. So the eggs are laid and then how long are they eggs? I kind of started um, at the juvenile point of when they emerge yeah. I'm wondering if they're larvae in the ground for 17 years. No, I'll tell you why. So after the la- the eggs are actually laid while the cicadas are still in existence because they last about like four to six weeks. Right. Once they emerge. So in that time, what the mommy cicada will do is she'll actually kind of find some young growth on branches and essentially cut into it, kind of dig out kind of like a trench, a mini trench, and we'll lay her eggs in there. And then after, I guess, six to 10 weeks, those eggs will hatch and then fall down, like the hatchlings go down and burrow into the ground and thus begins that 17-year cycle. So they're not eggs in the ground. Oh. They're very young larvae that actually themselves will burrow into the ground to wait 17 long years. (laughs) Okay, so they're in the larval stage for the 17 years. Yeah, and it goes through different stages. I think you could even say like larval through juvenile. So they're juveniles when they emerge, essentially, and then kind of 
turn into adults once they're attached to the trees and break out of their skins. Oh, I just love this so much. It's so cool. And what I always used to love when I was little was just like, often you could find, and this might've been the annual cicadas as well, but you'd often find their shells like all stuck to the trees or after one of these big emergences, there would just be piles of them everywhere. Hmm. It's really kind of gross, but in like the best way possible, like in the, like popping a zit is gross, but it's so fun. For sure. But this is where, okay, the next stuff I'm going to talk about is where I think this is so fascinating and another reminder of just like how amazing the life on this planet is um, and how smart it is. So this idea of kind of coming out on mass at these weird incremental times is called a predator satiation survival strategy. So what that's referring to is that they come out in such massive, massive numbers that predators are essentially able to like eat their fill. So in one of these nature videos, you see like skunks, squirrels, different birds, fish, turtles, like all like mowing down on some cicadas because they're just everywhere and they're so abundant. And so the predators can essentially eat as much as they want and it won't even make a slight dent in the population. And thus like the next generation of cicadas won't be in any way harmed because each woman can, each female cicada can lay like hundreds of eggs at a time. Lady Cada. Lady Cada. Oh, that's a great name. Lady Kata. This is where it gets nuts. So why the prime numbered years? Why 13-year cicadas or why 17-year cicadas like we have been talking about? Let me see if I can explain this well. All animals, prey and predators, they move in essentially cycles. They'll like, their populations will go up and down based on competition, resources. So predators essentially will over time, evolve their cycles, their population cycles, to match up with the prey cycles. So predator cycles are going to be, the populations are going to be at the highest when the prey populations are at the highest, Mm -hmm. right? So they'll be kind of synchronized. Mm -hmm. Predator cycles synchronized with prey cycles. Sure. But where the cicadas are freaking genius is because, think about this. So if the cicadas were on like a 12-year cycle, a predator that, say, is like on a two, two-year, four-year, six-year cycle would really easily coincide with the brood emergence. Uh-huh. Right? Right. But because it's on a prime number, those synchronicities happen a lot less often. Oh, yeah, sure. So, like, for instance, like, say you've got some sort of lizard or something that wants to eat some cicadas, wants to go to the cicada buffet and just, like, unbutton his pants and just really have at it. Yeah. He Say he's on a five-year cycle. That would only coincide with the cicada uh, emergence every 85 years. That's just really bonkers to think about. That's like a divine strategy, like, ha-ha. Isn't it gorgeous? We've outfoxed the skunks. Yes. It's, like, so fascinating. So because, obviously, prime numbers, they're only divisible by, like, one and themselves, right? Um. There's not, you don't have all these other factors in there. You don't have the factor of two or four or, you know, whatever. Right, right, right. It's like between five and six. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. Like it's kind of a 
nice little sweet spot there. It really is. Because five would be 15 and then, you know, four would be 16 and then six times three is 18. Exactly. Mm. So it's just freaking genius. And you just have to wonder, like, how how did it happen? How did we get there? How did we get here? That's pretty much all I have. And I think we've mentioned everything else. Like, the next, so the next emergence of Brood 10 will be uh, in 2021. Though I did come across a news story that I think it was, like, in 2017, there was a bit of an early emergence due to climate change, which is kind of scary. Yeah, that's definitely scary. Because if that throws off the whole cycle, then it could put the cicadas on like, you know, maybe a more synchronistic cycle with some of their predators, perhaps to like throw off the the prime number year. Right. So it might decimate a particular population. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So do you have any questions or memories or queries? Well, I just want to add for all my fellow cicada heads out there, that I really like cicadamania.com, and that's where I've been getting a lot of my cicada facts. And I just encourage those who wish to explore further lines of cicada inquiry to examine that resource. I didn't even examine that resource for this. Well, Meredith, that gives you something to do before next year, before Brood 10 in Cincinnati. I know. I'm so excited. I remember... um, because it was my senior year and they weren't actually so bad on in like the part of town where I lived. But our senior picnic was kind of just over the line of where it was like insane cicada infestation. So they were everywhere and they're so loud. And I remember I had like kind of jumped up on a tree branch and I was just kind of like pulling it up and down and just all of them were like falling out just like a rain of cicadas cicada rain cicada rain we've got poopy rain and cicada rain what will it be next who knows oh yeah and i just remember like my mom worked on the other side of town and she would come home and like every nook and cranny of her car would just be like filled with um dogs everywhere just getting so sick because they would just eat so many cicadas just very excited bug crunching dogs yes they're so crunchy and i in one of these videos i think it was like one of the attenborough videos they was talking about how clumsy they are so they just are always like falling down and falling into water and can't get out and so turtles are more than happy to come by and snatch them up it's a feeding frenzy for everybody yeah sounds great it does sound great Uh, Well, let's take a break. Let's do it. Behold, the noble warthog, trotting her way over to the stream for a drink, where Mother Nature has so dutifully equipped her with two sets of horns and two sets of warts. Alas, she has left her snout too short to reach the water below, so she must adapt by dropping to her wrists essentially bowing before the life-sustaining resource. Luckily, her wrists are naturally padded for this Whoa! purpose. Whoa! Hold on, old man. You got it all wrong. This warthog is way cooler than you give her credit for. Just check out her gnarly new brand clubby rad wrist wraps for warthogs. She wants to kneel down and drink comfortably without sacrificing an opportunity to show off her sassy, suede style. You see, Pauline here has opted for a snazzy giraffe print to protect her wrists while she drinks. Oh, and over there you'll see her brother, Todd, has chosen a sweet neon green set with matching horn covers. 
Given the times, dude, today's young warthogs aren't gonna settle for anything less than the hippest and hog duds. That's why the coolest creatures on the savannah won't be caught dead kneeling without. Brand, clubbies, rad, wrist, wraps, four, warthogs. Stanza Haiku Here are some Animal Home For you Cool This poem is entitled Suburban Deer The plight of the suburban deer seems to be one of tiptoeing, even-toed, in the time-honored fashion, across manicured lawns, thinking to oneself, Someone great must live here, for they keep the earth around them so very full of the most delicious things to eat. I see hostas and hydrangeas. Oh, and is that a daylily I smell? But oh dear, suburban deer, your plight is actually one of doe-footed fleeting across driveways, dodging doe-bellied dads who scream at their t-ball players for fouling out or moms with spark-plug, hairstyled hairdos, taking the name of the noble Bronco in vain as she barrels you down with her white Ford, of the same name. She laughs to herself. <laughs> Sorry, Bambi. Another name taken in vain. Also, she can get to Walmart fast enough to hunt down a minimum-wage worker who, too, stands frozen in her path down aisle 18 with a deer-in-headlights look. This piece is entitled Song of a Living Fossil. May your gills be ever moist. May your gills be ever moist. May your gills be ever moist. Whoa! Hey! Buddy! Put me down! I've been here for 450 million years. This is my home. You hominini have only been around for about 6.3 million years. Ha! A mere 1.4% of my existence. And yet, you have destroyed more than mine ever have. You have fought more. You have worried more. You have consumed more. And now you consume me. And I become you. As through your veins pumps the red-hot fire blood, reminiscent of the warmer days of the Triassic, the origin of you mammals, now so will my copper-rich blue blood, carrying with it the secrets of the Ordovician, the Silurian, the Devonian, the Carboniferous, and the Permian era. Here's the first secret. You should season your food. Do snakes write sonnets? Quails quatrains? We hope you found solace in our refrains. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. And Amelia, this show isn't about dirt.
Arthropoda, Arachnids, Myriapods, Insects, Crustaceans. Class. Serrata, it's a subdivision. Order. Cephosura, they're related to Arachnids. Family. Lemulidae, they're marine and brackish. Genus. Lemulus, only one extant species. Species. Polyphemus, the Atlantic horseshoe crab. Calm down, farriers. This anthropod isn't for you. Farriers. That's right, Meredith. It's not a horseshoe. It's also not a crab, because it is not a crustacean. What? I don't know that I knew that. It's more closely related to spiders, arachnids, and scorpions than it is to crabs. Wow. Okay. I am on the edge of my seat. Let's do a little bit of tax facts, because this will make it clearer, okay? Okay. So we have the phylum arthropoda. That includes all insects, arachnids, myriapods, and crustaceans. Right. Within anthropoda, there are five major subphylums. We have trilobites. We're familiar with the concept of trilobites. Mm -hmm. They've disappeared in the Permian-Triassic extinction events. We have number two is the myriapods. We have millipedes and centipedes. Mm -hmm. Number three are the hexapods. Those are our insect friends that we've been focusing on. Hey! Number four is the crustaceans, the lobsters, crabs, barnacles, crayfish, shrimp, etc. And then number five is the chelicerates, which is spiders, mites, scorpions, horseshoe crabs, etc. <laughs> then we get to the order, Xyphosura. This is where we're generally in horseshoe crab territory, okay? Okay. So the horseshoe crabs are the entire order. We only have four living species. All four is in the family Lemulidae. Our species is along the United States eastern seaboard. Like, if you were to go to Cape Cod and see a horseshoe crab, it would be one of these horseshoe crabs. Okay. The other three species are Indo-Pacific species. Got it. All four are very similar in terms of their ecology, their morphology, and their serology, which would be their blood. Okay. And we have another living fossil, Meredith. This is definitely a living fossil. Yes. The origin is about 450 million years ago. They look apocryphal. You're familiar with these things, right? Oh, yeah. And I was going to say through all of this is that I I always think of them and trilobites kind of like in the same way in my head, I guess, and that they creep me out a bit. I don't want to come across one of these like at all. No, you know, me neither. It's... It's got that kind of carapace vibe going on. Yes. And then it has that spiky, spiny tail. And then when you lift it up, it contracts. And it has all these legs that kind of like are moving around. It just looks like that face sucker thing from Alien almost. Yeah, yeah. It's another one of those that I'm like really not into thinking about. It's kind of like an octopus territory for me of like the less thought I have to put into it, the better. Sure. Sure. Well, this seems like a perfect time to talk anatomy. Okay. <laughs> I'll do my best to, like, keep it together. Yeah. We've already talked about the carapace, the smooth shell. Uh-huh. And the front of it is kind of shaped like a horseshoe, almost. That's where the name comes from. Right. And it's usually a green to a dark brown or maybe, like, a grayish type color. There are three main body parts. We have the head, a.k.a. the prosoma. This is where they have both their brain and their heart. And underneath their head is where the six pairs of appendages occur. Ew. This is where my appendages occur. The first pair are pincers and they're used to pass they're used to pass food into the mouth. Okay. 
And then the next set of legs is the pedipalps. <laughs> and they're used as walking legs. And the males have specialized claspers on their pedipalps that they use during mating to hold on to the female's carapace. Oh, gosh. Wait, pedipalps? Like, can you, how do, can you spell that term for me? Sure. P-E-D-I. P-A-L-P-S. <laughs> it sounds like a like one of those as seen on TV kind of products. Now, petty palps. Pamper your foot with petty palps. So the remaining four pairs of appendages are pusher legs that are used during locomotion. <laughs> okay. But it feels like they do most of their actual like walking with the petty palps and that <laughs> the remaining legs are you know, for propulsion more. How many legs are there total? Eight? There are six pairs of appendages. So there's one pair of pincers, one pair of pedipalps, (laughs) and then four pairs of pusher legs. (laughs) Okay. You got it? Yes. (laughs) Okay, good. So a fun thing is that if their limb is lost, they can regrow lost limbs. Oh, like wow. our sea star, our echinoderm friends. Yes, or skinky day tails. Or skinky day tails, correct. Next is the second body part. We had the head, a.k.a. the prosoma. Now we're on to the abdomen, a.k.a. the opisthosoma. Opisthosoma. Now, Meredith, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Six pairs of appendages are not enough. Maybe we should have six more pairs of appendages. Oh, yeah, please. Exactly. Well, just look at the opus the Samoa <laughs> of the horseshoe crab, and you will find the remaining six pairs of appendages. The first pair houses the genital pores. Oh, God. But then the remaining five pairs are modified into like a flattened plate known as the book gills. And that's how they breathe. So they breathe underwater using their book gills. And... They can also breathe on land with them for a short time as long as their book gills remain moist. Okay. Okay. Now we're on to the third part of their body, (laughs) which is the spine-like tail, a.k.a. the talson, a.k.a. the caudal spine. We know caudal fins from fish. Yes. We've encountered the term caudal before. That's the tail fin of the fish, the caudal fin. Mm -hmm. And thus we have the three parts of the horseshoe crab. Wow. Who knew? I didn't. But this is the head, thorax, and abdomen. It's the same as, but it's, they're it's different, obviously, but it's rem- reminiscent of your song about insects. Yeah. We're inside out, no bones within. No bones within. So they are sexually dimorphic. The ladies are typically 25 to 30% larger than males and can weigh up to twice as much. Oh, so, big girls. I know. Yeah. They, The girls can be up to 24 inches in length and about 11 pounds in weight. I encountered another fun vocab word, Klein, C-L-I-N-E. Okay. I will use it in a sentence. (laughs) There is a Klein in the size of horseshoe crabs from north to south in their habitat, which is to say that there's a measurable gradient in the size of horseshoe crabs from north to south. So the further north, the larger the horseshoe crab. Huh. The further south, the smaller the horseshoe crab is how I understood. So a cline is a measurable gradient and a single characteristic across a geographical range. Interesting. So it's kind of like 
very similar to an incline in terms of if this if this data of you know how horseshoe crab size correlates to geographical um, what would that be latitude there would be an incline in that graph or a decline or a decline so i guess it's taking it's yeah it's the root of incline or decline so it is a term that we're familiar with but the particular usage of the word in this way seemed to be focused on this particular aspect of well it was a narrow definition because it was regarding animal characteristics so who's to say i'm curious now about the use of that word in other contexts yeah me too. Sounds like we have a further line of inquiry. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. So they have a large compound eye with monochromatic vision on each side of their prosoma. Ugh. And then there are five simple eyes on the carapace and two simple eyes on the underside just in front of the mouth. So there's a total of nine eyes. Ugh. Yes. Ugh. I know. That's nightmarish. The blood of horseshoe crabs has this protein called hemocyanin, which contains copper at concentrations of about 50 grams per liter. And their blood does not have hemoglobin, which is iron-containing proteins, which is the basis of oxygen transport in vertebrates. Right. So their blood is kind of interesting. And they are used, therefore, in medical research, their blood specifically. Hmm. It's widely used in the limulus amebocyte lysate test to detect bacterial endotoxins in pharmaceuticals and to test for several bacterial diseases. Interesting. Yeah. And then in the space station, they'll use enzymes from the horseshoe crab blood to test surfaces for unwanted bacteria and fungi. And a protein from horseshoe crab blood is under investigation as a novel antibiotic. Wait, you said in the space station? Yeah, they're doing tests on they're doing tests in the space station utilizing horseshoe crab blood. Is that where you got the idea to do this after all your space station watching? No, you want to know where I got the idea to do this is I was just thinking about nice summertime experiences and I was remembering when I did summer stock theater back out on Cape Cod. Yes. You know, when I was in college and I remember we went down to the beach one day And there was a horseshoe grab and like the director of the theater picked the thing up and it was like, so I was thinking about it. And so I, you know, started watching YouTube videos about the horseshoe crab as I was doing this and saw a few things that were really fun and exciting. But I also saw a video of this guy who went out to hunt for blue crabs because he was going to make them into a recipe. You know, it was like a confessional YouTube kind of thing. But he didn't catch any blue crabs, but he did catch a horseshoe crab. And so he cooked that up and ate it. And the entire time he was eating it, he was just talking about the spices that he added to it and not the actual horseshoe crab itself. It was very strange. So you can eat them. I was going to ask that question. They they are something that humans eat. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. For sure. I feel like your next question is what about their romantic life? Uh, obviously. So... When, you know, the time is right and it's a good season for breeding, <laughs> they'll migrate to shallow coastal waters. Okay. Several males will try to surround the female and fertilize at like together. So females <laughs> are easy to spot and count because they're larger than the males. Right. And so you'll see a female carapace and then there will be like, you know, three to five smaller dudes like 
kind of, you know, going for it. <laughs> the female will lay the eggs and the male kind of gets up behind her and he has like a special curvature thing in his shell so that's easier to like, you know, more or less mount. Yeah. And as the lady lays the eggs, the male fertilizes the eggs as they're laid. Okay. And the lady has dug a hole in the sand and she'll be laying between 60,000 to 120,000 eggs in batches of like a few thousand at a time. Oh, gross. Okay. Yeah, I know. But (laughs) Meredith, I have to say, quick shout out to the Anura squad, our frogs and toads. Yes. Because this sounds and looks similar to Amplexus pose. That's exactly what I was thinking. Where the male is on top of the female, the female is larger, the male is smaller, the male is on top of the female, and the female is laying eggs, and as she is laying the eggs, the male is fertilizing them. Yeah. It's a very similar process. That's sexy amplexy. Sexy amplexy. The eggs will take about two to six weeks to hatch, I think. That information was for a different species, but... It did say that the morphology and ecology and serology was similar, so I presume it's about two weeks for this species. Okay. And then the larvae will molt six times during their first year, and then after that, annually for the first three or four years as they grow larger. Yeah. So similar to our cicada friends. Exactly. Similar to the cicada friends in terms of molting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, pretty much what I got. I mean, do you have any questions or anything that I can answer or cast light upon? By all means. So when they, before they come to like the shallow tidal waters for mating, like are they swimming around? Do they crawl on the bottom of the sea? Like where do they hang out in non-sexy and plexi times? That's a great question. I don't actually know the specific answer to that, but Mm -hmm. they're they're bottom dwellers. They're not swimmers. They don't have- Okay like a facility to swim their propulsion's all based on crawling on the floor got it and that carapace is to protect them that's the kind of danger of the creature is i think that's why they've lasted so long is because they have that heavy shield of armor and then all the sensitive bits are on their appendages underneath you know right right totally and what do they eat they're like grazers okay i think they eat like they eat what they find. Okay. You know? Bottom feeders. <laughs> yeah, bottom feeders generally. They just kind of, you know, munch on whatever they like. I don't know. They're iconic. They're fun. They are iconic. <laughs> They're definitely kind of a lot. They have, you know, uses like baiting f- fish bait. Oh, okay. Oh, shorebirds love eating their eggs. That's another thing that's fun. Those shorebirds, they love that stuff. They do the same thing to turtles little turtle eggs yeah yeah i mean there's lots of writing about the horseshoe crab blood i think that that's an interesting line of inquiry for those that are curious to learn more yeah i had no idea about any of that or that they were such like a ripe um research subject in that way right you'd think after 450 million years like there'd be nothing left to research right it's like how i feel about beethoven like enough already no i'm just kidding right that's like how dare i Yeah. Blasphemy. I mean, there's other people, though, you know. Right. Exactly. Well, I guess, Meredith, let's take a break. Let's do it. What's going on, Ricky? Oh, I'm sad, Daddy. 
there's a new album by my favorite Lhasa Opso singer, Bjork. And all I have are these lame-o headphones that are designed for humans. That is a problem, Ricky, since Bjork is known for sublimely utilizing those glorious dogs only zone of 20 to 40 kilohertz. And since humans can't hear that high, their audio equipment can't reproduce the dulcet and at times plaintive tones of the fluffy resonance chamber of the Lhasa Apso frame. Bjork is such a genius. <laughs> well, at any rate, Head on down to Brand Clubby's new retail concept, Animalia Audio, a mobile pop-up traveling through a variety of habitats. Wait, a traveling audio store for all animals? You heard right, serving the specific needs of all species, from elephants who can hear all the way down to 16 hertz, to bats who can hear all the way up to 110 kilohertz. Well, what about beluga whales? All the way up to 123 kilohertz? Even them. Oh. How can I find the schedule of the pop-up? Log into Brand Clubby's retail web portal for the latest updates. As always, you can order online, but the best products have been reserved as traveling pop-up exclusives. Use code Ooh, 15 to save 15% at checkout. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's oats, Meredith. That's definitely oats. It's oats today. I was getting some manure, but that just might be like what? That just might be my upper lip. Yeah, it's probably your upper lip. Okay, so regardless, we're in the feedback. <laughs> yeah, we're in the feedback. I mean, let's just go for it. Jacob from Lexington wants to know what animal would be most likely to wear a fedora. So I guess I need like a clarification. Is this a fedora worn like earnestly, ironically? Is it somebody who can actually pull off a fedora? Or is it somebody like most people who are incorrectly wearing it? And by incorrectly, I mean like shouldn't wear it because they just look like a douchebag? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know? a fedora, look, the fedora is named after a musical, first of all. So let's just set the record straight. It is? I didn't know that. The, the name of the fedora comes from the title of an 1882 play. Okay. The hat appeared in the play. It was okay. a center-creased, soft-rimmed hat, and it was fashionable for women, and the women's rights movement adopted it as a symbol. Oh, I had no idea. And then Edward, Prince of Wales, started wearing them in 1924, and it became popular amongst men. Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting. I had no idea. So I'm going to go with some sort of English marmot after Edward, Prince of Wales. I imagine some sort of, like, maybe a mustelid, you know, some sort of, like, small carnivora mammal that is indigenous to the British Isles. Okay, okay. So maybe some sort of, like, um, minx or something. I don't know. Are minx in the British Isles? Who knows? Perhaps, but I'm willing to say that a mink would wear a fedora. A mink, not a minx. <laughs> I'm losing it. A mink, that's what it is. You're thinking about lynx. You're combining minx and lynx. Yeah, sort of that's hybrid. exactly it. 
Um, I keep, so my first thought was kind of like a snake. Oh yeah. Because they just seem so like, I feel like a snake could pull it off. It's not like some seventh grade saxophone player who decides he's going to be like a jazz cat wearing it. That is my favorite character in Pen15 is the middle school (laughs) saxophone player who wears the fedora. Brendan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, so I think like a real cool snake would actually pull it off really well. Okay. So, I I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think I'm willing to switch sides and agree and just say a snake. Okay. I, so that we're united. And we need unity right now. So, yeah. ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, fish position snake, ding. Ding. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is so fun. Okay, so Becky from Phoenix proposes a new game called Creature Pals, where we have to say which creature is the best friend of the following. So first one up is the zebra or the zebra. Hmm. Ooh, who's best friends with the zebra? I'm going to say the lemur. Oh, the lemur. I was thinking like those birds that like to um, hang out on the backs of savannah creatures. Oh, yeah, those birds. Oh, yeah. And kind of like and peck the insects off of them. Like, those are best buds. Oh. Oh, I like the that direction of Creature Pals. Yeah, the birds. The birds that hang out on the backs of savannah creatures. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and I actually read, too, that there's, um, like, the warthogs will let birds do that as well. You're really on a warthog journey. Oh, you know how I get. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> All right, well, what's the next? What's the next one? Oh, man. So we've got Trichinella spirialis. So the nematode that causes trichinosis. I think this one's easy. I think that they're best pals with pigs. I was going to say that same thing. Yep. Pork pals. Pork pals, yeah. So, okay. So zebra birds, Trichinella spirialis pigs. Okay, what's the third one? Oh, my other love, the Desmond I mean, I guess do humans count as creatures? Because I feel like Desmonds and humans are two peas in a pod. I kind of feel that way too. That's what my first thought was. Because I was like, can I be a creature pal with the Desmond? Because I really want to be. But then I do remember this picture that I saw this very like, it was like a starstruck Desmond looking like cross-eyed at a dragonfly that had alighted upon its nose. That's funny. (laughs) So I would say either me or Mike you or a dragonfly or a dragonfly okay yeah (laughs) i feel like in their natural habitat we are not native to the same habitat that desmond's are you and i are not yeah russia but dragonflies likely are so i'm yeah i'm gonna say dragonfly as like i i'm i'm just all about agreeing with you today meredith (laughs) i'm okay with that yeah I mean, a fish position, I guess. Yeah. So zebras, savannah birds, trichinella, spirialis, pigs, and desmonds, dragonflies. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Well, Curtis from Greenpoint, Brooklyn asks, so I get a CSA box delivered, and I've noticed some ants from the farmer in my food. I feel bad that they'll miss their home, so I made a farm diorama at ant scale where the ants live. It's different than what's normally called an ant farm. Is this all too much? I say no way. I say when you're going out of your way like this to 
make your the creatures in your life comfortable and cozy and give them this little habitat, I think it's just enough. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that, Meredith. I feel like right now this is such an unusual time. And, you know, Curtis, you live in Greenpoint. You made a ant scale diorama of a farm. You sound pretty crafty. You sound artistic. I feel like a lot of people like that aren't really that occupied with work as much as they have been previously, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think this sounds like a really constructive use of your time that adds joy to the world and provides these displaced ants a safe space to be in your home where they can feel like they're still at their home. Yeah. Oh, it's like the best of both worlds. Yeah. So the fish position, that's not too much. It sounds like the right amount. Yeah. We applaud you, Curtis. This is great. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Keep those questions coming, y'all. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Yeah. These were great this week. Yeah. We love to hear from you. We sure do. This was a really fun episode, Meredith. Yeah. We got some insight into cicadas and we must all remember similarly like what we learned with sea stars they're not fish and horseshoe crabs are not crabs wow yeah yeah that's great yeah bye bye Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app that really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.